Thanks for tuning into the Bridge Church Podcast. Our hope for you is that you would feel the welcome home of Christ wherever you're listening from today. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey to be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world. Let's dive in. I've heard a lot of Easter sermons in my day, as I imagine many of you have, and uh, I've often heard Easter referred to as like the great comeback, right? Like it's, it's why we love a good comeback story. I'm assuming it's why people still watch Rudy. It's not that good of a movie, but we love, right? We love a good, a good comeback story. Uh, but I found a video that I think best describes the unexpected comeback of the resurrection in 15 seconds. Is it all right if I show that video? I'm going to show it anyway, so it's a good thing you said yes. 15 seconds, I think maybe the best depiction of this unexpected comeback of the resurrection. Here it is. So it takes place, the soccer match, right? He lines up his shot, taking his time. He takes his shot. Oh, he hits the crossbar. The game is over. He misses the header, but that's okay. Look at how defeated he is. It's over, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh! Victory! He's celebrating, and then watch. The guy in the red is the devil for this analogy, obviously, and uh, assumes, that's my favorite part, just this whole hands on the hip, like, ah, shucks. Sort of how I imagined Satan on this day, like, ah, so so close, right? We thought it was going one way, but it actually ends up going a completely different way. Resurrection is many things. But we have to remember that that first audience, those first disciples, did not actually see it going this way. Now, I do want to first say something. Many of us, I know, are, we're here because we're ready to, like, celebrate the open tomb, the resurrection, the risen Lord. But I know there's plenty of us, I know this, who are like, I'm not really a Jesus person or a Bible person or a church person at all. And let me just say again, we're so glad that you're here. I hope that you find a home here. I hope that you know that you can belong well before you believe. I, ho- I hope that you experience that. But my guess is that if you came up to me afterwards and just told me honestly why you're not a Christian, if you told me like the things that have been done to you or said to you or said about you, my guess is if you told me those things, I would probably say, I get it. I get it. I understand. I understand. But if you gave me one shot to try and convince you to even consider Jesus, just to be open to the possibility, here's what I wouldn't do. Uh, I wouldn't defend the history of the church. As we know, many of us, the church didn't have just like a couple of spots where things got icky, but whole seasons of darkness enacted by the church. I wouldn't try to defend things Christians have said or done or even are currently saying or doing. And this might surprise you. If I was to try to convince you to just consider Jesus, the first thing I wouldn't do is to defend using the Bible. In fact, over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about that. Next week, we're going to talk about can I trust the Bible? We're going to talk about why does God allow suffering? Are miracles real? Does science and faith, are they in conflict? The reason that I wouldn't start there is because there were thousands of Christ followers before we had a Bible like this. If you gave me one shot, one opportunity to convince you to consider Jesus, I would start with the event that we celebrate today, the resurrection of Jesus. 
Now, when Jesus rose from the dead, those in Jerusalem and Judea, they did honestly what any of us would do if we had a friend that we watched get murdered and then be buried and then we're having breakfast with on the beach a few days later. We talked about it. Would you be able to keep your mouth shut if that happened? No, there's no way. They talked about it and they wrote it down. We can believe in the resurrection of Jesus because real people witnessed it, wrote about it, and believed it. In fact, we have four historical accounts of the resurrection. Matthew was an eyewitness to it, believed it. Mark got his information from Peter, an eyewitness who believed it. Luke, who thoroughly researched his gospel account, believed it. John was a close friend and an eyewitness and believed it. Peter wrote letters to the church. Paul went and planted churches all around the Mediterranean Rim. But I think maybe the most compelling case for me would be his half-brother James. Now, I've said this before, but let me just ask you bluntly. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was God? <laughs> I'm assuming you're laughing because you have brothers like I have brothers or have been brothers the way that I have been brothers. We know that prior to the resurrection, James was not a follower of Jesus. He wasn't marching around calling him the Messiah, but after his resurrection, he not only becomes a Jesus follower, he becomes a leader in the early church. And in his letter, he very clearly articulates that Jesus rose from the dead. Or maybe a surprising example is the Emperor Nero. Some of us have maybe heard the name Nero. 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion, he burned down Rome. He was having a rough weekend, I'm not sure why. He burns down Rome, and then he blames the Christians. Nero needed someone to blame, and there were thousands upon thousands of Christians in Rome who believed with all their heart that Jesus rose from the dead. And the reason he could blame them is because they were there, because they existed. I've heard a lot of people say, especially when it comes to the resurrection, that it's, like, it's a myth, it's a, it's a legend, it's a fable. Like, yeah, maybe some of that happened, but like over time it became a fable or a story. I've heard experts say that it takes a minimum 40 years, usually something like 60 to 80, for something to become a legend. And the reason for that is because you need all the people who witnessed it to die. 30 years after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, there are tens of thousands of Christians, not just in Jerusalem and Judea, by the way, but 1,500 miles away in Rome. 30 years later, which means 20 years later, there was maybe not tens of thousands, but thousands, which means 10 years after, there maybe wasn't thousands, but there was hundreds. In fact, we have all sorts of other historical documents that point at the very least to the massive significance of Jesus. People like Tiberius, Julius Africanus, Phlegon, which is a sweet name, Thallus, they all confirmed that at the crucifixion of Jesus, something happened. Confirmed that there was a great darkness, that there was this earthquake, something shifted. In fact, there was a second century Greek philosopher named Celsus who was, he was a fierce opponent of Christianity. He's not team Jesus. He actually made the first comprehensive attack on Christianity, trying to resolve why Jesus was able to successfully perform miracles. These are documents that you can go and see now. People who hated Christianity 
identifying aspects of our faith. Now, you, you may not find that interesting. I clearly find it too interesting. But today is not simply, we don't just simply gather to celebrate the fact of the resurrection. We also gather to celebrate the implications of the resurrection. Because if the tomb actually is empty, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, that's not just some ticket to heaven somewhere in the future. That changes the way we treat our spouses and our kids, the way we use money and recreation and entertainment and our time. It changes everything about how we live our lives because I think Paul said it well. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. Some of you, maybe you already think that. You already feel like this is useless. But those are, those are strong words, right? If Christ has not been raised, then Bible studies are useless. If Christ has not been raised, then small groups are useless. Mission strips are useless. Quite bluntly, what we're doing today is useless. It's like a nice room with like a killer band and we're all going to feel good when we leave. But ultimately... It's useless. Apart from the resurrection, there is no savior, no salvation, no forgiveness of sins, and no hope for eternal life. And here's the truth. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus was a very good but very dead man. Now, on that first Easter, there was this exchange that was so beautiful, and I think it so beautifully encapsulates not just like praying a prayer, but a life surrendered to the resurrected Jesus. And I want to share with you that story. But first, a little bit of context. So the ancient Jews... They believed sincerely that God was going to send a Messiah to restore Israel to its former greatness. But year after year, decade after decade, century after century, nothing. Now in the first century, they're under the boot of Rome and they're thinking, did we miss an exit here? Like, what has happened? This is not at all how we anticipated this going. And then this really strange rabbi shows up on the scene. And he's, he's not just preaching, rabbis always preach. He's preaching with authority. And he's not, he's not just giving like three-point alliterations where each line begins with the same letter. Sorry, Baptist preachers. He's, he's speaking in like parables and riddles. And he's like pulling coins out of fish's mouths for some reason. Like he's really, he's really odd. And so the, the crowds begin to gather and the authorities are getting really anxious they're getting nervous about this rabbi, this leader, until he raises Lazarus from the dead. And that's the last straw. That's the last straw. So then he was betrayed by a close friend. He was condemned by the temple. He was crucified by the empire. He was prepared for burial and sealed in a tomb. And the game seemed over. Legitimately, we have to remember that the resurrection did not happen instantaneously. The game seemed over. There was no message worth repeating. There was nothing to hold on to. There was no movement to keep alive. They were expecting a conquering hero. They found a crucified friend. They were expecting a king claiming victory. They found a cold, borrowed tomb. They were expecting to celebrate together and what they found was themselves mourning alone. Everything they had expected in Jesus died. In the ground, game over. There was no, there was no countdown timer outside the tomb. It's easy for us to miss this. But there's no like big sign that was like, okay, everybody, 
10, 9, 8. It's about to get good. There was none of that. They had no idea. In fact, none of the gospel writers write themselves as heroes in this story. Not a one of them. Not one of them says, everyone else doubted, but not me here, reader. Not one of them. Why? Because they didn't expect a resurrection. They ran. They fled. But the story does not end there. Now, the Apostle John got this account from the source because he himself, who was there at the crucifixion, lost faith. And so the story begins in John chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Now, Mary was a woman that before Jesus, she was plagued with this psychotic disorder that resulted in chronic violent seizures. But after she encountered Jesus, she was healed. She was transformed. So she becomes one of his followers, a disciple, an apprentice. A word's called Talmudine. She's like, my life was this way. Now it's this way. I'm with you. I go wherever you go now. And so Mary becomes one of his followers. Not only that, she wants everyone else to experience what she just experienced. Can you blame her? She's like, hey, it's me, Mary. Remember me from yesterday? I know, different person. I'm with him. You should join. Her life has been transformed and she's beginning to believe everything that this rabbi is claiming. Is, is this actually the Messiah? And yet everything that she hoped for on that Friday died and was buried. But then came Sunday morning. And Mary, to put it lightly, is heartbroken. She's devastated. And even though her heart is broken, she still wants to pay respects to this man that changed her life. Imagine the confusion, right? She's like, I'm legitimately different, but now he's buried. She, doesn't, she has no idea what to do. What would you do? What would any of us do? So what she decides to do is to, to go to the tomb with some spices to re-embalm his body. And here's the most important part. When Mary got to the tomb, she expected to find his body. That's why she brought the spices. She fully expected to arrive at the tomb, find a body, pay her respects, and leave. But when she arrived at the body, or at the tomb, she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Can you, can you imagine what that must have been like for her? Like, what must she have been thinking? Now, her first assumption isn't, resurrection! He's alive! It's finally happened! No, she believes that someone has broken into the tomb and stolen the body. It says next, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. Okay, so a quick aside here. This is John's account, right? And I love how he writes himself into the story. He names Peter, Peter, and then calls himself the one Jesus loved, right? <laughs> Subtle, John. He's like, for God so liked the world, but God so loved me. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm the one he really loved. It's subtle, but it's there. So Mary sees a, an empty tomb. She's not declaring resurrection. She runs all the way back to the city to alert Peter and John. And Peter and John, they don't go to the tomb, by the way. They know that if the enemies of Jesus came after Jesus, they're likely to start coming after them next. So Peter and John are hiding out at home when Mary bursts through the door. She says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So 
Mary's no dummy. She knows that Jesus has a ton of enemies and it would not be beyond Jesus' enemies to break into the tomb, take the body and desecrate it. So there couldn't be any movement. There'd be no reason to like come. The last thing they want is for the tomb to become like some sort of shrine or some place of worship to kind of keep his memory alive. So Mary comes to an empty tomb and assumes the worst. And Peter and John, like Mary, they don't know how to make sense of it. So Peter and John, they go to the tomb. They also see nobody. They're puzzled. They go back to the city. But Mary makes her way to the tomb and stays there. She doesn't know what to do. In her mind, this just keeps getting worse. She was heartbroken and now she's maybe enraged. Maybe she's confused. And it says this, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. I can, just, I can just picture her standing at the last place they saw they put her friend. Saying, God, how, how could you let this happen? This man, this man changed my life. He changed everything. He touched people no one would touch. He spent time with people no one would spend time with. And he was crucified. And now they won't even leave his body alone. God, why didn't you come through? Has anyone ever been there? I've been there. I've lost track of how many screaming matches with God I've had. God, what the heck? Why didn't you come through? Did you lose track of my file? What is going on here? What are you doing? Where are you? Did I not pray hard enough? Did I not do the right things? If you've felt that way before, by the way, you are in good company. The Bible is filled with stories of people who cry out to God in confusion and lament and anger. And what happens next, though, is so powerful. It's so powerful. Verse 11, as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. The only thing is, Mary doesn't know they're angels. So she's even more confused and the angels ask her a question. They ask her, woman, why are you crying? This is how we know that angels are men. Right? <laughs> Isn't that such a dude question, right? Like, woman, why are you crying? Did I do something? Are you mad at me? What can I do? Why are you? <laughs> For those of you who are new around here, by the way, that's a joke. I don't know if it's a, okay. Listen to what Mary says, though. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And then she hears something stirring behind her. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Can you imagine? I have no idea why she couldn't recognize it as Jesus. Maybe it was still too dark out. Maybe he was like too far away. Maybe for whatever reason, he like looked different enough that she didn't recognize him. Or maybe she's so convinced that he's dead. Neurologically, she can't even wrap her brain around like, well, now I'm looking at Jesus. The text says, didn't recognize her. So she sees him, doesn't recognize him, turns back to the tomb, to weeping, to sobbing, to looking at this place of death. And this is just conjecture, but I, in this moment, I wonder if Jesus is grinning. Right, she turns, it's clear she didn't recognize him, so she just turns back 
Do you think Jesus might have been smiling a little? Like he knows for Mary, everything is about to change. In fact, not only for Mary, but for the entire cosmos. Everything is about to change. So with her back to him, Jesus asks the question that the angels asked. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? The part that John tells us next, I think is kind of hilarious. He says, thinking he was the gardener. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny to me. Like, do you think 10 years down the road when Mary is like at a party and they ask her to tell the story, which by the way, you could never follow that story. Like, Mary, you're the first one to witness the resurrection. Tell us that, right? You're like, well, I can't tell my story now. You win, Mary, every time. But do you think when she told this story, when she got to this part, like she kind of chuckled a little bit, like, so I'm there staring at the tomb. This guy's talking behind me. I think it's a gardener. <laughs> Can you believe it? Now, there's a whole lot of things that are beautiful that are happening here that are connecting the garden to the Garden of Eden. We don't, we don't have time to get into, but I love that John includes that detail. So Mary thinks this is the gardener and asks this question, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Sir, I'm assuming you have a role here, out here with the tombs. Can you just help me? I just want to see his body. She's desperate. Just please give me this one thing. And so Mary, still with her back, by the way, to Jesus, looking in the tomb. And then Jesus whispers, Mary. Mary. She hears her name. Can you imagine? In a moment, everything clicks for her. The hope that she had seen die is then rekindled. The possibility is, is this actually him? With her name, she puts it all together. She turned toward him and cried out, Rabboni, which means teacher. She's overcome with emotion. She runs to him, overwhelmed. Suddenly, everything in her life and in the world changes. And then Jesus gives her instructions. She says, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. In other words, I need you to go back to the city, but you have a new message to convey. The last time you ran to the city, you told everyone the body was stolen. The new message is, I've risen. The tomb is empty, not because of some thieves, but because the king of kings lives. Go into the city. And so Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Which means, by the way, women were the first to proclaim the good news of the resurrection. Here's why that's a big deal. In the ancient world, a woman's testimony had no credibility at all. They couldn't testify in court. And yet when Jesus rises from the dead, he chooses as his first witness a woman. If you're making up this story, by the way, if you're trying to fabricate a story that you want people to believe in, in the first century, you would never have a woman as your primary witness because no one would take it seriously. But do you know why in all four gospel accounts, the writers tell us that the women saw Jesus first? 
Because that's what happened. That's how it went down. And so Mary declares, I have seen the Lord. God has come through. He is alive. He is who he's been saying he is. Death has been overcome. Sin has been eradicated. This changes everything for all of us. Because of the resurrection, we can pray to God knowing that he actually hears our prayers. Because of the resurrection, we can live with eternity in view. Because of the resurrection, we know that suffering does not have the last word. Mary expected fully and completely a crucified friend. She expected a body in a cold, borrowed tomb. She expected to mourn all alone. And in so many ways, we're like Mary, aren't we? Even though we live in an Easter world for many of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, it still feels like Good Friday. Maybe you feel like it's all over, that the bottom has dropped out. You've reached your end. You're coming unraveled. We've all been to places where we're convinced that hope is lost, that the story's been written and there's nothing left to do but accept the inevitable. Maybe it's something in your marriage or with your kids or your career, or your finances, or your relationships, or your health. Maybe intellectually you know that it's Easter, but it still feels like Good Friday. And maybe there are others of us that we're, we're like Mary for a completely different reason. Maybe if you're honest, you didn't realize anything had changed. For you, Easter is still about like bunny rabbits and Easter eggs for some reason, and you just showed up here today because it's like, this is the thing I'm supposed to do. Maybe you're not looking for Jesus at all. Or maybe you don't recognize him. Every day feels like Good Friday because you didn't realize that Easter had come. If you're here today and you're experiencing the unexpected, you've struggled to understand the resurrection, no matter where you're at on that journey today, I want to share with you a story from a bridge member, a friend of ours named Nelson. Here's his story. My name is Nelson McKinney. I came from Nashville, Tennessee. I live in Spring Hill now. I'm married to my wife, Rachel McKinney. We have four beautiful kids. We just had a little girl a month ago. My early experience with knowing Jesus and learning who Jesus was was through family, church, I went to a Christian school as a kid. I knew all the facts. I was taught about the Bible. But ultimately, I, I ended up thinking of God as somebody standing over me, watching him, waiting on me to mess up. Um, I ran from that. I rebelled from that. And I strayed very far. I lost a friend at 18 in a botched drug deal. He was shot and killed. And the worst part about that is I was the driver, the transportation, for the drug deal to happen. That was enough for me to throw my life away. I didn't need to live. I had nothing to lose. And when you're that young, you feel indestructible anyways. It was the perfect combination for a detonation of toxicity in my life. I started running with the wrong crowd. People were stealing cars that I was with. I caught two felonies within six months and I really didn't care about living. Everything just kind of started crashing down. When I was 20 years old, 
this girl that I'd been seeing for a while says, hey, I'm pregnant. It's your child, I know it. So that's when the flip happened. The first thing God gave me was purpose. And I'll never forget, I was devastated. This woman had just told me she was about to have my child, man. Like, what am I supposed to do? I'm scared to death. And I looked up at this guy and I said, God, is this what I'm supposed to do? And I felt like he said, yeah. So I jumped in. As my son grew and progressed and got older, he turned seven, eight years old. He got real sick when he was seven. His immune system attacked his body. And I'm gonna tell you, if you've never seen a kid sick and you can't do anything but trust the people who are there, and trust God to handle that. You don't have any other option. And that was another place God had me. <laughs> so once again, another shift. <laughs> and then God went to work. My life, I could have wrote it a hundred million times and it could have been great, but it would not be what God made it. Because I've been at that hopeless place where you don't, you don't see a way out. And, and, and God just comes and just grabs you up and holds you close and says, I love you. My son, he has something called HSP. It's a long German word that I can't pronounce. He was supposed to have a colostomy bag. He was supposed to have a catheter and a feeding tube, none of which he had. They cut out six inches of a small intestine and he was healed. Three years later, um, his mom, we split up, she left. Uh, I went to fight for at least some kind of custody of my child. And I found out he wasn't mine. Uh, it didn't matter, it didn't change anything. It hurt, it certainly hurt. But this is another way that God showed me that I was adopted in. He said that blood doesn't matter to you just like it doesn't matter to me. He shed his blood for us and we were grafted into his promise. So there's been, a, there's an awakening of, of how God sees me and how, I identif how I'm identified as his child, not how I identify, but how he identifies me. And that's what I'm wrapping my head around right now is that Jesus loves me the way he does unconditionally. And I certainly believe that even the resurrection journey, along with the reconciliation journey, along with any kind of journey that you go on with Jesus, is gonna be a constant walk. You're gonna fall. You're gonna trip. I still have to deal with uh, disappointments. Uh, I carry a lot of things inside that God hasn't released me from yet. I expect there to be some things that I still have to depend on him for. He didn't take the thorn out of Paul's side. I don't expect him to take whatever thorns that are still in my life out, but that's part of it. You have to trust God and you have to trust that he's fulfilling his purpose in your life. So my life is full of resurrection stories. Resurrection is constant and it happens all the time if you're a Christ follower. Things may die and things may pass, but God also resurrects and he brings things back together if he wants them together, if they serve his purpose. Yeah. I love that story. I love what Nelson said. My life, it could have been written a hundred million times and it would have been great, but it would not be what God made it. Jesus said, I, I didn't come just so that you could exist. I came to give you life and life abundantly. Life to the full. Simply put, Easter means that nothing is impossible with God. 
that life triumphs over death, that love triumphs over hatred, that hope triumphs over despair, and suffering does not have the last word. I think my favorite part of the story with Mary is the moment that she hears her name. It's like when she heard her name, she could finally understand what she could never see before. And if, if you only hear me say one thing today, it would simply be this. Jesus is calling your name. Yes, he loved the whole world, but he also, he loved you. And he loved you. And you, and you, and you, and you. He's calling you by name. Maybe, like Mary, you think it's all over and all hope is lost. He's calling you. Maybe you don't realize that anything has actually changed. He's calling you. He's pursuing you. And he is relentless, friends. Today we celebrate the most important moment in human history, the pinnacle of the divine story. It's the moment that God came to earth and took his place on a cross while thinking of you. But Mary didn't just simply hear her name either, did she? She responded, she cried out, teacher, Rabbi, Jesus, I believe, still asks all of us, will you respond? Will you respond? There is power in the name of Jesus, friends. There is love and hope and grace and mercy. Trust in Jesus. I heard a pastor named Alistair Begg say this week, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and God said, on what grounds should I let you in here? He said, if you begin that response in the first person, you've already missed it. I did these things. I believed, I had faith. He said, beloved, the only proper response is in the third person, because he, he did what I could not. He accomplished what I could never do on my own. He rescued me. He saved me from sin and death. It's all about him. And maybe today, don't ask him to come into your heart, but ask to enter his. His story is way bigger and way more beautiful. I want to end with a, a picture. It's a painting. And the official title of this painting is The Disciples, Peter, and John Running to the Sepulcher on the Morning of the Resurrection. Understandably, it's been shortened to The Disciples. <laughs> Here it is. You can, you can throw it on the screen. It was painted in 1898 by a relatively unknown Swiss artist named Eugene Bernand. A friend of mine wrote about this, and he said at the first hint of dawn, highlighting in the clouds. Peter and John are rushing to the tomb of Christ. They've just been told by Mary that she and the other woman found it empty. That Christ actually is risen. And they're 
Words are ringing in their ears, but their faces and their bodies reveal that they aren't sure they can believe her. John is this one. You could see it all over his face. He's literally, right, he's wringing his hands. The beloved disciple, he was with Jesus at the cross. He looks as if he can barely bring himself to believe that Christ might actually be alive again. And then there's Peter. And Peter was the only one to verbally deny even knowing Jesus in his darkest hour. Look at this face. There's so much in that expression. He looks terrified, hopeful, ashamed, and desperate all at once. He's not sure he can believe, but man, he wants to. He wants to. Haven't we all been there? Bearing the weight of our brokenness and our shame and our doubt and our fear and our anguish, hoping against all hope that Jesus is alive and that he loves us and that he forgives us and that he's calling us by name. He's calling you by name. Don't merely think of Jesus as the door to some afterlife heaven in a far off place. Think of Jesus as the door to new creation possibilities right here and now. Salvation is not just for someday, it's for today. It's for today. That belief, that trust, that surrender, that reality has changed my life. Salvation is not for someday, it's for today. For the Christ follower, Easter is not just simply someday in history that we celebrate. It's not even about a lavish celebration in some afterlife with him. It's the inauguration of new life, new creation, and new possibilities right here and now, right wherever you're at. We're no longer bound to a system of victory by force because the Alpha and Omega is not simply the God behind us from which all things spring. He is the God who goes before us, who holds the possibilities of who he longs for us to become. So take heart. We are Easter people living in a Good Friday world, but God is not done with us yet. May our eyes be filled with that same desperate hope that Peter and John's were on that first Easter morning because the cross is both hideous and beautiful. It's as hideous as human sin, but as beautiful as divine love. It's a collision of sin and grace, but it is not a contest of equals. In the end, Love and grace win, and we call it Easter. We call it Easter. As Dr. Tony Evans once said, Jesus didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. He was just getting started. Would you pray with me, please? God, I have, I have lost track of how many times I have failed to believe fully and yet God you meet us in our unbelief in our fear in our struggle in our doubt and our joy and celebration 
Holy Spirit, would you move and convict in our hearts in a way that only you can? And even when those moments and when we falter and fall, remind us again that you are for us, that you pursue us again and again and again, and you save us from our sin. Open our eyes, God, to where and how you at work in our life and in the world. We thank you. We love you. And we pray all these things in the beautiful and healing and resurrected name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us. And for those of you who support our mission, thank you for your joyful generosity. It's because you give that we're able to see lives changed forever by the gospel. You can click the link in the description of this episode to give now or go to bridge.tv for more information about our church. We believe the gospel is good news worth sharing. So if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe and share this episode with family and friends on social media. You can also tag us at BridgeChurchTN. Thanks again for listening.